Hello and welcome back to the podcast. As always, I will say thank you for listening and thank you for having the time to listen to our episodes. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and follow on the social medias. If you have a suggestion for a topic, you can send me a message on Instagram or leave a comment uh, on the episode. And I will try to make that topic into an episode. Today's episode, we are looking at the siege of Ruby Ridge. And the siege of Ruby Ridge was an 11 day standoff between the Weaver family and the US government, represented by the FBI, the ATF, and the US Marshals. The siege ended with two dead and two injured from the Weaver family, and one dead from the US Marshals. All of this took place between August 21st and August 31 in 1992, and Ruby Ridge is located near Naples in northern Idaho, Idaho in the US. Ruby Ridge is uh, kind of a controversial topic, and it's controversial because of the handling by the government representatives in the actions taken against the Weaver family. And these deaths seems to have been able to be avoided if uh, things were handled differently. But of course, it's easy to sit with hindsight and say what people should and should not have done. But I will try to give you the facts and let you make your own opinion about it. The reason for this is because we live today in a society where we need to be able to rely and trust on our government and our law enforcement. But of course, there are some bad people all around. And if you would like to live off grid and just be left alone, you should be able to do that on your own land and property as long as don't hurt anyone of course. So let's begin with the Weaver family and who they are. You have Randy Weaver, the father, Vicky Weaver, the mother, and their four children. At the time of the siege they were Sarah 16, Samuel 14, Rochelle 10, and Elisheba who was 10 months old at the time. Randy Weaver had a background as a factory worker and a former enlisted in the US Army. And he and his wife Vicky moved to Idaho. uh, And in their own words, they wanted to escape this sick society and homeschool their children and basically just want to live their own life, uh, kind of isolated from the rest of the world. And whatever you feel about someone that wants to live by themselves, they should have the right to do that, I believe. So 
they sold their belongings and actually lived with the Amish community for a while to learn how to live without electricity. And they ended up buying around 20 acres on Ruby Ridge in 1983 and began building their cabin. Following this, Randy had actually a dispute with another man, his neighbor, Terry Kinnison, about uh, another land deal. And this actually went so far that it went to court. In the preceding court case, Kinnison lost the case and was forced to pay Randy uh, $2,100 for damages. Kinnison was not taking this lying down, so he wrote letters to the FBI and claimed that Randy had made claims of wanting to kill Pope John Paul II and other political figures in the United States, including the governor of Idaho and even President Ronald Reagan. So this led the FBI to interview both Randy and Vicky about these claims. And to pile on on this, the FBI actually had gotten reports and information that Randy also was associated with the Aryan nation and had caches of weapons at his resident. The Weavers denied these charges and in the end the FBI never filed any charges against the family. We now will find ourselves in 1986 and Randy has once again got on the FBI's radar and why did he stumble upon the radar again? Well. In 1985, Randy and his wife was uh, attending meetings at a place called Hayden Lake. And these meetings actually had elements of Aryan Nation members. How involved the couple was with the Aryan Nation members has never really been proven. But uh, Randy have said himself that he does not believe in white supremacy but he wants his children to grow up isolated from the outside world and how you look at his beliefs is up to yourself to decide if he's right or not Uh, but at the end of the day it doesn't seem like randy was a follower of uh, the aryan nation so in july 1986 He met a man called Kenneth Fadeley during a meeting at Hayden Lake that was actually hosting the World Aryan Congress. And this was actually the first time uh, Randy attended this particular meeting. Why he was there, I do not know. But the thing about the man Kenneth Fadeley was that he was an FBI informant who was going by the name Gus Maggiano and he was undercover and presented himself as a gun runner and a gun smuggler that provided motorcycle gangs with weapons and Fedele and Weaver got talking 
and they met a couple of times and in 1989 Weber actually sold Fedele two sawed-off shotguns and stated he could sell him more shotguns if he ever needed it and here now is where all of this begins to go a little bit muddy because Fedele actually used the purchase of these shotguns towards Weaver to try to make him an informant towards the Aryan Brotherhood. However, Weaver absolutely refused and actually began telling associates uh, around Fedele that he was an informant. This made Fedele, along with the FBI, file charges against Weaver. And the funny thing about these charges was that what they claimed was that the shotguns were too short. Because if you buy a shotgun, as I understand it in uh, America, depending on which state you're in, you can shorten the barrel if you want, but you can't short it too much because then it becomes illegal and it becomes a firearm charge. So they claimed that they were two shorts and they pressed charges about this. And now the ATF becomes involved in the case because it's a, it's a firearm related case. And who is the ATF? Well, it stands for the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Firearms and Tobacco. So they go in when federal cases reflect or circles around just alcohol, firearms and tobacco. And they were close with other government agencies. And in 1990, when the charges were finally leveled against Weaver, his house on Ruby Ridge was completed and the family moved here. So here is one of the problems in our story now. If Weaver knew of the charges or just ignored them, I can't really, I can't really tell. But according to the agencies involved, he knew but refused to acknowledge them. And on the other side, the charges was, according to Weaver, lost in the move by mail, so he did not know about them. So <clears throat> the ATF took, to, took the decision not to arrest Weaver on his property in fear of their agents and safety concerns. So they post as broken down motorists in the nearby area on a path they knew Randy and Vicky was going. So Randy and Vicky stopped to help these motorists and were immediately arrested. Randy was presented with the charges and he was released on bail. Now <clears throat> he got the court date February 19th in 1991 and the court date is something that you should put on your memory because here this story even more goes a little bit off the rails because the defense lawyer for Weaver, Everett Hofmeister, he started 
writing letters to Weaver on several occasions, asking him to meet up and such to start preparing his defense. And because Weaver didn't have a phone and rarely checked his mail, these letters was not read or taken up to the cabin and such in good time. And on February 9th, uh, 1999, uh, Everett Hofmeister, the defense lawyer, got an information letter from the court that the date now was switched from the 19th to the 20th of January. So they moved it a day, and this was because of a holiday. Weaver, uh, on the other hand, had only had sporadic contact with his defense attorney, and he had had contact with his uh, probation officer. And the probation officer had told him that if he wanted to go over any information about his case, he should just contact him. And the information about the changed court date only reached uh, Hofmeister and not Weaver and his probation officer, Carl Richens. And now there is the next mistake in this thing, is that Carl Richens did actually send a letter to Weaver with very poor wording and a little bit of misinformation. And he said that the court date was moved to the 8th of March, 1999. I'm sorry, 1991. So now we have a situation where information is not going as it should. And Weaver, of course, misses his court date. The judge in the case, Harold Lyman Ryan, then issued a bench warrant for Weaver for missing his court date. And a journalist at the scene by the name of Ken Keller, he found this situation to be a little bit strange. So he started digging into the situation and he actually found letters showing the missing information that was supposed to go to Weaver, informing him on changed dates and everything. And he had a suggestion that was to hold off on the bench warrant to after the 20th of March to see if Weaver would show up on the court date that he thought that he was supposed to be there. But the judge, Harold Lyman Ryan, refused and held on March 14th a grand jury hearing where the information of the missing letters towards Weaver was not brought up, but the grand jury now filed an indictment towards Weaver. And he was now considered a fugitive from the law. And uh, pointing out here also is that he has been designated as a federal fugitive. So this is on a federal level now. So this now passes from the ATF to the US Marshal Service to apprehend Weaver. And through his probation officer and legal counsel, Weaver now gets informed of all of this. And his already small trust in the government starts to go even thinner. 
And a fa interesting fact here is that the ATF also left out to the US Marshals about the FBI's efforts to try to get Weaver as an informant and that led to the charges about the shotgun. And Weaver on his end informed his legal defense that he would remain in his house and he refused to be taken away. And in a way you 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 can ask yourself why people just don't just try to talk and resort this issue. Well, being Weaver, he um, already is a little bit fed up with the government and a little bit paranoid, I would say. But he has actually been told by his legal counsel that if he goes to court on the gun charges, he could risk losing the case. And if he lo loses the case, he was going to lose his land because the government would go in and seize it and that would effectively make his wife homeless because Vicky was homeschooling the children and being uh, being a stay-at-home wife and if she becomes homeless her and Randy's children will go into foster care so it's um, it's kind of a messed up situation so this is quite rapidly turning into a giant mess and proper communi communication was needed but did not happen but there is unfortunately more to come in this story the u.s marshals tried to contact weaver at several occasions but they got the same answer every time if he communicated with them that he did not want to be apprehended and he would flat out refuse of being arrested because of the malpractice around his case and handling by the court because he felt that he was convicted unfairly so they should not have the right to apprehend him the u.s marshals actually went in under disguise on weaver's property and put up surveillance to get an understanding of the property and the family and when you live on your own private land you get pretty familiar with the surroundings and Weaver he um, spotted this and his paranoia kept getting more and more profound and honestly if you try to think about it I, I'm, I'm not surprised that he gets more paranoid because of this because people in disguises are putting up cameras and such on your property so we already have a person not trusting the government and now his property is under surveillance and if he goes to court he risks lose uh, everything he owns and his family will be torn apart so the u.s marshals now moves on with building a so-called threat source profile on randy to go forward with his arrest and have more information on the suspect and this i have understood is a common practice to build a, tr a threat source profile on a person because you want to understand their habits where they like to hang out and who they are so you can make the best job possible however this was made quite poorly and they interviewed uh, a lot of people surrounding the Ruby Ridge area and the towns 
and this included other secluded people and they made the report more hearsay than truth and um, in the report it states that Randy Weaver was a former Green Beret and had had special weapon and explosive training and that he had tunnels under his property and he had fallback positions and caches of weapons and he would shoot anyone that showed up on his property unannounced and armed. So the Green Beret thing is completely fiction. He was never a Green Beret. He was uh, just a regular US military personnel. So this makes the situation even worse and have even more rumors going around about the entire Weaver family living isolated on Ruby Ridge. And now we have another escalation in this situation. And this is on the 18th of April 1992. And a hired helicopter for the show Now It Can Be Told made a flyover over the property and the media reported that shots had been fired against the helicopter but both the pilot and the US marshals that were putting up more surveillance in the area denied this because they did not hear any gunshots or anything like that and the pilot said that he was not fired upon but the ATF, FBI and the US Marshals leading officers in this situation used this to draw up a rule of engagement for the operation to apprehend Weaver. And a quick side note uh, is that what is rules of engagement? That is a document of uh, for law enforcement and military personnel how they will conduct themselves in case of armed conflict and violence against their personnel and uh, their combatants. In short terms uh, it is what must happen before you get to open fire against uh, people on the other side and who are considered to be combatants and civilians. And this act to draw this document shows that the federal agencies was taking the threat they perceived from Randy Weaver very, very seriously. And now we come to the day on the 21st of August 1992. And the siege and this entire process starts when six US Marshals was going up to the Weaver property to scout out positions in advance where they could apprehend Randy Weaver if he left his house. And at the time the Weaver family had a family friend visiting by the name of Kevin Harris. So the marshals was actually dressed up in camouflage clothing, they had night vision goggles on and M16 rifles. And the party split up and three marshals advanced on the cabin while the other three took up an overview position on the north ridge from the cabin. Marshals Art Roderick, Larry Cooper and William F. Bill Deegan advanced towards the cabin and Roderick 
took the decision to throw two rocks at the cabin to check the alertness of the family's dogs. This action actually provoked one of the dogs by the name of Stryker to run out and check the noises. Kevin Harris, 14-year-old Samuel Sammy Weaver and later Randy Weaver followed the dog hoping that the dog had reacted on um, maybe a prey animal and that they could hunt because the cabin was running low on meat. The three marshals, they retreated towards the OP position through uh, the forest, but took up a covered position in a Y junction in the forest. And following the dog, Randy split from Kevin Harris and Samuel uh, and met um, the other marshals because he was the he was the first to discover them and um, he started shouting at the marshals who they were and they were responding identifying themselves as u.s marshals and this is still on weaver's property and kevin and samuel now emerge from the other side towards this white junction so the u.s marshals has randy on one side and now the other two men Kevin and Samuel coming from the other side and now the dog striker also runs into the situation and starts barking at the marshals and this for some reason makes Marshall Roderick shoot the dog and the dog dies and Sammy of course uh, saw this and being 14 he reacts by firing a shot in the direction of the marshals and this now triggers a firefight between all six men who start shooting at each other in the following firefight kevin harris shoots an unaimed shot from behind a tree stump that actually strikes william f deegan so bad that he actually dies later from his wounds and sammy now panics and starts running back towards the cabin and he gets shot in the back by agent cooper and he dies kevin harris and randy weaver stops firing when samuel dies and the firefight is now over because the marshals also has one guy down so they retreat after collecting deegan's body and gets to call for help from the bureau and with the help from vicky samuel's body was picked up and placed in the weaver's guest cabin beside their main house main house and now the firefight made elements from the fbi atf sheriff's department national guard and local police force arrive and start surrounding this cabin and they actually the national guard even brought in apcs that is armored personal carriers to help surround the, the property and now we have a situation where it's like when you roll a snowball, I would say, down a hill. 
in the beginning not much is happening and you can actually stop it but when it gets enough mass and speed it can't be stopped it's just gonna go and go and go until it's crashing so along with the fbi's hostage hostage rescue team called hrt u.s marshals and atf a rule of engagement is now edited and drafted out to the operating officers on the scene and this uh, document was presented during the following trials after the siege and was presented under oath so i'm gonna quote the four rules of engagement they uh, edited in here or drafted up in the operation so i quote and number one if any adult in the area around the cabin is observed with a weapon after the surrender announcement has been made deadly force could and should be used to neutralize the individual number two if any adult male is observed with a weapon prior to the announcement deadly force can and should be employed if the shot could be taken without endangering any children number three if compromised by any dog the dog can be taken out and number four any subjects other than randy weaver vicky weaver kevin harris presenting threat of death or grievous body harm fbi rules of deadly force apply deadly force can be utilized to prevent the death or grievously body injury to oneself or that of another and of quote these rules have been heavily criticized by many of the people involved and the fact that in rule number two where they identify it as any adult male seems to be uh edited to make the shooting of sammy or samuel weaver justified and actually the chief negotiator at the scene fred lancely he is at the time a veteran over over 300 negotiations and he has been quoted to say that these are the worst rules he has ever seen in a hostage situation and actually gives more or less a green light to shoot on sight and another man a denver swat team leader gregory sexton called them and i quote inappropriate and a severe uh, shift away from standard proceedings however the fbi's hrt sniper teams accepted the rules and they saw it as a green light to open fire if needed and they were deployed by foot and had taken up positions actually before uh, the chief negotiator fred lancely arrived on the scene and could start communicating with the weaver family all of this takes place during the first day of the siege and on the second day of the siege the fbi hrt sniper lon horiuchi 
had taken up a position about 180 meters away from the cabin and was looking down at the house. He then sees Randy Weaver, his daughter, 16-year-old Sarah, and Kevin Harris walking towards the guest cabin where Samuel's body was stored. And they were going there to pay tribute to his body or just look after him a little while. And when Randy was opening the latch to the guest house with his back towards Huriuchi, he fired and struck Randy in the back and the bullet, bullet exiting through his armpit. The three people now runs back towards the main house and Horiochi fires again. He hits Kevin Harris and wounds him in the chest, but the bullet continues through the door uh, Kevin Harris is standing in front of and hits Vicky Weaver at the same time as she's standing inside of the door holding the 10-month baby in her arms. And Vicky unfortunately dies from this gunshot. So now we have two dead in the Weaver family, Samuel and Vicky, and both Randy and Kevin Harris are wounded. This now lead the FBI HRT teams to evaluate the situation and quickly suspends the sniper teams and starts negotiating. Randy does not want to really talk and civilian negotiators are brought in and communications are finally established and Randy Weaver actually agrees to talk to one of the men called Bo Gritz who was a retired special forces officer that helps out in negotiations and the siege is lifted by Randy's surrender on the 31st of August 1992 11 days after it began and Kevin Harris who was a critical in critical condition because of his gunshot wound he was surrendered the day before on the 30th of august and was flown immediately to a hospital where he got surgery but was actually isolated on the in the hospital and was not allowed to contact contact anyone not even his parents to uh, tell them that he was alive and well after a couple of days he was uh, granted this privilege to contact at least his parents. Both Randy and Harris were later taken into custody and the children sent to relatives and both men were going to stand trial for the charges against them. The trial against Randy and Harris began in April 1993, a full year after the siege. And there were a number of charges against them, among them murder, endangering children, resisting arrest, and for Randy, of course, the old weapon charge against him from the FBI. The defense lawyer in the case, Gary Spence, argued that both Randy and Kevin Harris had acted in self-defense, and he directed a lot of criticism against the authorities involved in the siege. 
He actually did not even call a single witness for the defense. And in the end, Kevin Harris was acquitted of all charges. And Randy Weaver only got convicted for the old weapon charge and was sentenced to 18 months in jail and a $10,000 fine. But given time for the time spent behind bars, he actually only served 16 months of his sentence and was released in mid-December of 1993. Post-trial for the Weaver family, they actually moved to Montana and Randy, he wrote uh, books about the siege together with his oldest daughter and he passed away on the 11th of May 2022 at the age of 74 and during his life after the siege both him and Kevin Harris filed lawsuits against the authorities involved in the siege and initially they demanded 200 million dollars for the murder of his son and wife and this ended in out-of-court settlement and all his surviving daughters was awarded one million dollars each and Randy received one hundred thousand dollars. Kevin Harris on the other hand was met with a lot of resistance and a lot more in his um, in his suing because he was never uh, in the runnings at first because he was even though he was never convicted for the killing of a U.S. Marshal, uh, the, the government did not want to pay a settlement to a person that had killed a U.S. Marshal, even though he was never convicted of the crime. He actually ended up getting a $380,000 settlement in 2000. The agencies was under heavy, heavy criticism for their actions in the siege. And this led to a federal investigation that was televised on C-SPAN. And a 542-page report was made that questioned everything about the whole situation, but especially the rules of engagement at the siege. Uh, And this is quite relevant because I must mention here that this siege of Ruby Ridge actually took place six months before uh, the Waco siege happened where 86 people died in the gunfight, the siege and the fire that eventually destroyed the entire compound and one of the sniper teams were actually involved in the siege of Waco also This led to redrafting for documents of how law enforcement should act in these situations. And one former chief of FBI's violent crime unit, Michael Cahoe, was actually convicted for destroying a report that was critical against the involvement of Ruby Ridge. And he was sentenced to 18 months and a $4,000 fine. And basically he got a report that was criticizing the entire incident and he destroyed it. 
So he went to jail for that. And the sniper who fired the deadly shots, Lou Huriuchi, stood trial in 1997, but the case was actually dismissed by the judge. It was, however, reversed in another court hearing, and he was charged with manslaughter. However, the newly elected prosecutor, Brent Benson, decided to drop the case. And Lou Hiriuchi never got any conviction for the killing of Wicked Weaver and the maiming of Randy and Kevin Harris. That is the siege of Ruby Ridge. And this is a tragic tale, I would say, of government overreach and miscommunication. And personally, I have to side a little bit with the Weavers here. If you already trust uh, the government and suddenly camouflage people are on your property and they kill your dog, I mean, well, then I can see why you shoot back. And at the same time, the lack of information from the FBI and ATF towards the US Marshals was, I think, so bad to not include the entire picture of who Randy Weaver was and why they were after him. I mean, for the Marshals, you walk into a situation where you believe the person is some form of home prepper with weapons who just wants to kill everyone and such things. Of course, the people that go into that situation will be nervous and may act in in haste. But in the end, I actually I see this as an overreach by any uh, government when you see how the trial about Randy's weapon charge were treated, because you're trying to communicate with someone that without a phone and who doesn't really check his mail and. <clears throat> You try to make this person appear in court and the fact that they changed the date without informing all the parties and not confirming that all the parties has this information is just so, so bad, I think. In the end, um, I would say that this following statement by the FBI Deputy Assistant Director Danny Coulson that he made during the fourth day of the siege pretty much pretty much sums this up and I'm gonna quote here he lists four points so number one these charges against Weaver is absolute bullshit number two no one saw Weaver do any shooting Number three, Vicky has no charges against her. Number four, Weaver's defense. He ran down the hill to see what the dog was barking at. Some guys in camouflage shoots his dog, started shooting at him, kills his son. Harris did the shooting. He is pretty in a pretty strong legal position. End of quote. And I find there's not really much to add from that. So, that is today's episode. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please feel free to follow the podcast on Spotify and our social medias. 
share and comment if you have a topic you would like me to cover drop a message to me on instagram or in the comment section i hope you have a really good day and bye bye for now